With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on Sunday, May the 2nd. I cannot wrap my head around the fact that it is already May of the second year of the pandemic, which I think (laughs) mercifully is slowly coming to end. I think we're starting to see some daylight at the end of that tunnel. But that said, we've got a Grand Prix to talk about. And it was and it's funny, man, because I watched the race this morning. And I was just like, eh, it wasn't that great. And I, I listened to some podcasts throughout the day and, and I read some race reviews. And I'm like, maybe it was better than I thought. And I actually went back and revisited the race this uh, this afternoon. And it wasn't actually a bad race. There was some really meaty stuff that happened. And I, I think if there's a takeaway for me from this Grand Prix, and we've got lots to talk about, I think it's that tiny margins are going to have some really significant impacts on the way that this season plays out. And and by that, I mean, over the past seven years, even when the top teams made small mistakes, it didn't necessarily have a big impact on the outcome of the championships because ultimately Mercedes were so far and away uh, better than everybody else uh, in in the field. But I think what we're seeing this year is because there's so much parity, particularly amongst those top two teams, that small mistakes can have a big impact on the outcome of the championship. And we'll get into this, but very specifically, Max didn't have a bad weekend, but he had three very specific errors that certainly played into the outcome of this weekend. You know, obviously he had a lap time deleted in qualifying, which cost him uh, being position number one, having pole for the race weekend. And if he'd had pole, maybe he would have won. Uh, he ultimately made a mistake in an effort to get past Bottas, which allowed Hamilton to get past him, which possibly cost him the race win. And then finally, on the last lap of the race, when he was going for fastest lap to pick up that one championship point that could have a big outcome on the end of the season. Again, he made a mistake and the lap time was deleted. But I think overall, it was a it was an entertaining Grand Prix weekend. And Nico Rosberg had made a comment today, and I don't specifically remember where it was, but it was basically to the tune that I quote unquote, I think Max Verstappen is just beginning to understand how good Lewis really is. And I think the weekend absolutely reflected that. What were your thoughts? I agree with absolutely everything that you said. And I think we can wrap this one up in under three minutes. <laughs> Thank you all for tuning in. But uh, joking aside, yeah, you know, it was a, it was a fascinating weekend. And uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, if, you know, if there was such a big gap in the terms of where Mercedes is compared to everyone else, why would they be squabbling over that stupid single point for fastest lap at the end of the race that went from Perez to Bottas to Max? And then ultimately, like you say, he had his uh, time delay for exceeding track limits at turn 14, and then it reverts back to Valtteri Bottas. So, you know, I, I, I think what you said was really accurate in the fact that this season is really going to come down to the details, right? There's like a 
just a razor thin line in the the, the differences to, between where these teams are at, Red Bull and uh, Mercedes. Because if you look at the drivers' championship right now, so it's two to one in terms of race victories for Lewis compared to Max. Lewis on top with sixty nine points, Max second with the uh, sorry sixty one. Then you look at the uh, constructors' uh, championship. Okay, there's a bit more of a gap there. Uh, Mercedes uh, on top with one hundred and one, Red Bull with eighty three. So a little bit more of a gap there, but we still have probably hopefully 20 races to go so this is a marathon it's not a sprint and if we keep going at the way that the, this is going over the first month and a half of the season this could be a really good indication of how this season is going to play out over the long term and what you were just uh, remarking about uh, Nico Rosberg uh, Lewis's former teammate and also a world champion back in 2016 is I, I think I think one of the best comments that was made all weekend, because you pointed out the number of errors that Max made over the the different sessions that made up this race weekend that just put him at a disadvantage. And maybe under any other circumstances, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. But then again, he hasn't been in this position to fight with the, with, with Lewis Hamilton and uh, and Mercedes. But and, and Nico, and this was a, I think he said this to Sky Sports after the race. But anyways, what Nico basically summed up is that you know if you want to take on Lewis Hamilton, it's one thing to be good. But if you want to take on Nico or sorry uh, uh, Lewis and beat him, you have to be better than perfect because this is a guy that rarely, if ever, makes any mistakes. But Absolutely. he made he made one today though. Yeah, which was a very interesting because it, uh, it it was quite something. I mean, I thought it was a, the, the start of the race was very fascinating because you had that little bit of a squabble at the start. I thought uh, all three of the you know the, the 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 first three four cars started very good, except for Perez who had some wheel spin and didn't really get off the line good. But Bottas a good a good start, and Max and uh, and Lewis got off the line. Max ultimately taking that uh, position, uh, overtaking Lewis for P two at the at the at the beginning there, and then right away we get the, to the end of the first lap. Kimi Raikkonen, most experienced guy in Formula One, has a bit of, uh, you know, I don't know, both halves of his brain fused together momentarily or something, but I, I think maybe he just got caught out uh, just uh, by how much toe he had when his uh, teammates start to move over. But exactly, still, I, I, exactly. you know, he, that being said, he still managed to tag uh, Giovinazzi's left re- rear tire with the outside of his wing. Safety car, right? So that kind of flips everything on its head. So we, you know, have several car or several laps behind the safety car and then is back to racing. And it was just kind of interesting to see how things all played out. And and, and Bottas, you know, I kept going back and thinking about, uh, well, one of the many incidents we saw at Mugello last year, but and then noticeably like that big dramatic restart when everybody kind of plowed into each other. But uh, Bottas, like, I, I think he was quite cagey and quite uh, sneaky the way that he did that. Uh, and it was interesting because I think that he really caught out Lewis Hamilton and that put him at a disadvantage, which Max took advantage of. But then it was interesting how it just sort of flipped around a number of laps uh, later when, uh, when, when Max had his own, you know, mistake, which put him at a disadvantage and you don't give an advantage like that to, to Lewis Hamilton and expect to get, get away with it. And ultimately uh, Max paid for it. But I mean, Lewis had to earn that race win. It's one thing to look at it. Oh, well, yeah, Lewis wins again. I mean, he had to make two very good passes on two very good drivers and very good cars to uh, gain back where he started from and ultimately take the lead in the race. And it, uh, I don't think it was an easy race for him. I think, uh, it uh, ultimately, I mean, he had a bit of a lead at the end. And of course, we had, like uh, I was saying, this squabbling over the single point where both Max and uh, Bottas 
pitted late in the race. Not like they were pushing him for for that, uh, you know, the lead of the race anyways. But it was fascinating. I think there was a, a, a beneath the surface, there was a lot to see. You know, we talked last podcast about the uh, the fact that Hamilton might be feeling a little bit of pressure this year. And, and we talked about how that could impact his performance and his racecraft and his strategy and how he approaches races. But what we didn't talk about necessarily and, and shame on us was possibly the pressure that Max Verstappen is is feeling. And you have to wonder that, you know, he he's very similar to Hamilton in the sense that he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Now, he's been cursed with some serious reliability issues. And you look at last year and mm-hmm. the year before, yep. those are things that Hamilton hasn't necessarily really had to contend with outside of Malaysia in 26, which was obviously heartbreaking for all of Team LH. But you, you got to wonder that Max's mistakes this year probably aren't psychological, but I, I was listening to Jenny Gow and the checkered flag team earlier today talking about specifically this, and, and and I think their interpretation is that Max is currently driving so on the limit in an effort to compete with Lewis, knowing that possibly for the first time in his career, he has the complete package. He has the power unit, he has the chassis, he has the aerodynamics, everything's working, but even Even that said, he still has to drive so on the limit that every single microscopic mistake is amplified. A mistake you make at 20 kilometers an hour is very different than a mistake you make at 290 kilometers an hour when you're challenging a driver going into a corner. And you absolutely, absolutely nailed it. Like Hamilton, and I don't know that I want to necessarily criticize him or suggest that that restart was a mistake. He was certainly caught out. Bottas was a little bit sneaky. He had a great restart. Uh, Max ultimately was able able to capitalize on the fact that Hamilton was, and he wasn't asleep, but he certainly, he was unprepared for Bottas's start. But again, that mistake that Max made ultimately trying to get, trying to get Bottas to take the race lead is the one I think that probably resonates with me the most, right? Max had made a great move on Hamilton. Hamilton didn't have a great restart. Max moves into second. Max is biting Biting at Bottas, biting, waiting for that mistake, waiting for that mistake, waiting for that mistake. Bottas had the mental wherewithal to withstand that, but ultimately it was a mistake that Max made that made him fall out of DRS and mm-hmm. territory that then enabled Hamilton to sneak in and take that position back. And I, I think you're absolutely right that Hamilton has obviously been an ex- exceptional driver the past six or seven years, but he typically hasn't had to ha- make multiple overtakes in the course of a race to win the race, right? Ha- Hamilton didn't qualify on pole. He qualified well, but he didn't qualify on pole, but he had to overtake another driver in a car that's the equivalent of his in Bottas, but he also had to pass Max Verstappen to get this win. So I, I think obviously it was a very, very well-deserved race by Bottas or by by. By Lewis, apologies. But I think ultimately what this race speaks to is that we could be seeing the beginning of an epic battle this year. Again, knock on wood, everything goes well. All the teams have great reliability, but we could really be seeing the beginning of an epic all-time campaign. And fingers crossed, I know F1 wants this, Liberty wants this, all the television partners want this. We, we want, want this. this. So we have something <laughs> to talk about in October and November. But so far, this is shaping up yeah. uh, excellently. And I think... The one other comment I'll make, and and I know you're dying for me to pass it back to you at this point, but I think the one other comment I'll make as well is I joked, I put out a tweet on Twitter on Saturday, said, hey, how many of you think Bottas is going to choke up the lead by the end of the first lap? And overwhelmingly, (laughs) I think 80% of those people that responded said he probably would. 
of course, I think that's in jest, but I also don't think this was a terrible weekend for Bottas. I think I think the expectation is like, hey, if you qualify on pole in a Mercedes, you're going to win the race. But I just, I think we've all now made peace with the fact that Bottas isn't Lewis Hamilton. He's not Max Verstappen. And perhaps there shouldn't be that expectation that he's going to be able to fend both of them off over the course of 66 laps to win that race, even if he finished on pole. And I, I personally made peace with that. And I'm not necessarily disappointed with his performance. And he did what he needed to do. He finished on the podium. He collected a whole bunch of constructors points for this team. And I think for Mercedes, that's probably enough. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just want to go back because I thought uh, that uh, discussion that we had or you were just uh, making uh, about uh, Lewis and the pressure and Max and the pressure and driving to the limit is that we have to remember that these are two drivers at two very different stages in their careers. Of course, there's uh, there's a big age gap in there. Lewis in his uh, mid-30s, Max in his early 20s. And Max, I mean, this is the first time in his career, like you say, where he has the complete package and he's able to challenge for a world championship. So he he's learning this as he goes along, whereas Lewis, yeah, sure, he hasn't had a lot of competition. He hasn't had a lot of pressure a lot of the time over the past uh, several years, but he has the benefit of all these years in Formula One, all these years in motorsport, all this racing that he's done throughout his life to kind of fall back on. And uh, yeah, maybe it's not like ultra fresh in his memory because, you know, he hasn't really been pushed, especially over the past couple of years. But certainly, I mean, he, he's been through it before throughout the course of his life. So, I mean, he does have that uh, that that benefit. But yeah, I, I think that uh, you make a really great point uh, in bringing up the fact that Max is really absolutely pushing to the limit and every little uh, mistake is going to be amplified. And like, like you say, I mean, that, that the perfect example was that little mistake that he ha- that he made that dropped him out of DRS range with Bottas and then put him in the danger zone with Lewis in the DRS zone with him. But what absolutely astounded me was just the difference between the delta, between the top, like the straight line speed between the Mercedes and the Red Bull. Because when the Mercedes had uh, had the DRS, I mean, it was like Max was standing still, that overtake that Lewis made on him. And the thing was that when Max was behind Bottas and he had DRS, DRS was only really kind of keeping him in, touch. I mean, he wasn't closing anything. I mean, there were a couple of times that when you go through that uh, that uh, that first of that new DRS zone between uh, turns four and five on that little short straight, he kind of closed the gap up. I think about its smallest was about three and a half tenths, four tenths of a second or something like that. And even around the back going into the main DRS uh, zone on the, uh, the start finish straight, he was at maybe 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 of a second. And then when that DRS flap opened, he just was not able to, to close any distance between himself and uh, Valtteri Bottas. I know that they said that uh, I think that DRS zone was something like 120 meters shorter, which doesn't really seem like a lot at 290 kilometers an hour. But still, it uh, it would have made a little bit of a difference. But looking at that that difference in straight line speed, I don't think that 120 meters extra would have made a big difference for Max because it wasn't just like he was that close and just needed that extra little bit of asphalt just to make that, uh, you know, be in the position to make an overtake. He was just I think he was just hanging on whenever that DRS was enabled. 
It's an interesting point you make. Uh, and if you flash back to lap 20, that's the lap where Hamilton uh, sneaks up. Well, it doesn't really even sneak up on Bottas, but he storms past him. It was it was very much the same thing where obviously in that moment, Hamilton had DRS and obviously Bottas didn't. But the, the speed at which he closed in at Bottas on that lap was just remarkable. And I, I even made a note here during the course of the race that he, it was basically a second back, half a second past, gone just gone and he absolutely just kills him around the outside which is a, a tougher overtake oftentimes because you literally have to cover additional territory additional ground to make that overtake but it wasn't just necessarily that the Mercedes had great pace today is Hamilton in particular had monster pace yeah. absolutely monster pace and to your point as well I, I know that Max was mentally, psychologically in the position of kind of recovering from that mistake he made when he was trying to get into DRS range to overtake Bottas. He makes a mistake, but Hamilton's on him so fast and past him so fast. It's remarkable. And and I, I don't think we should discredit the work that Honda and Red Bull have done to put together that ultra efficient, compact, high horsepower power unit. That's a lot of words, but <laughs> I, I think we've probably not given enough credit to Mercedes for the fact that they're going to be able to extract comparable amounts of power from their package, despite the fact that they're obviously having some high rake drag issues themselves. But I thought uh, I thought it was very, very, very telling. But overall, I, I'm excited by what I saw simply because it continues to feed this narrative that we're going to have a very close constructors championship and hopefully a very, very, very close drivers championship as well over the course of the 21 campaign. Absolutely. And uh, Mark, that's a great place uh, to leave it uh, for the moment. We're going to take a quick break here and we're going to come back and we're going to keep uh, breaking down the 2021 Portuguese Grand Prix. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. We are talking about the Portuguese Grand Prix. And uh, Mark, one thing that I wanted to talk about, which uh, I thought was uh, quite interesting, was uh, some of the comments that came out of uh, Red Bull just uh, regarding the uh, time deletion for Max's fastest lap. Because he pitted on what? Lap 64, lap, lap 65, right at the end there to change onto the soft tires to try and steal that uh, that fastest lap and that single point away from Valtteri Bottas and uh, Mercedes. Ultimately, he did go 
go uh, wide at 10.14. He was informed in the post-race uh, interview by Paul DeResta from Sky, and uh, he made the, the the comment, oh, that's odd, or something like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, then they start complaining about all the inconsistent application of tra- track limits. I mean, they said right from the beginning that they were going to be enforcing them at uh, at turn four. But it turns out to be a little bit of fake news from, from Max, because apparently on Saturday, uh, race director Michael Massey and the FIA said that they were going to enforce track limits at uh, turn 14. So this was something that uh, either he forgot or they didn't pay attention to. But the point is, whatever the story is, they were all informed that that was going to be enforced. And there was, you know, there was a number of times that uh, were, were deleted. I mean, even uh, Yuki Sonoda was warned by, you know, from the pit wall, you know, even though he wasn't challenging for the lead. But I mean, he was wor- warned fairly early on in the race that he had exceeded the track limits a couple of times. And if he did it again, he was going to be in the, you know, penalty zone where he would be getting the five second uh, penalties and things like that. So I really don't have a problem with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're cheering for Max, you're cheering for Red Bull, you're going to be a little bit uh, disappointed, but it is a self-inflicted wound more or less, don't you think? Yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, I think it was pretty clear to all of the drivers and all the teams, and by all accounts, it was discussed and clarified during the the virtual driver's briefing this weekend that those were going to be enforced on those specific corners. And I think ultimately, obviously, Verstappen was penalized because of exceeding track limits in qualifying. And I would have assumed that he was going to be much, much, much more sensitive to that going into this race. And and ultimately that point was kind of stolen away from him. And I think if I flash back lap 66 and correct me if I'm wrong, but lap 66, it was ultimately Bottas that put in the fastest lap and then almost immediately Max put in the fastest lap. Correct. But there was, there was no second guessing on the broadcast. Like if I recall, like even during the broadcast, the sky team knew immediately he'd exceeded track limits and they immediately rescinded the point. So each, especially, especially him finding out the way he did seemed a little bit odd to me because the broadcasters and everybody at home knew immediately that that time was being deleted for exceeding track limits. But, Mm -hmm. but yeah, again, I, I don't think that they're playing ignorant here, but I just think they had to have known. They had to have known. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Helmut Marco, he said it, it was uh, annoying, just the application of the the, the um, exceeding track limits. But we've been through this uh, drama before. I mean, it, it, at first, after the first race, yeah, there was uh, some legitimate uh, complaints to, to be had uh, with the inconsistencies of the application of track limits. But in the remaining or the, the, the subsequent two, two races, I think that they've been pretty... I think they've been pretty much on the ball. I mean, we, we've seen it all weekend long. And the point is that the track is from the one white line on the left side of the track to the other white line on the other side of the track. And uh, if they decree that uh, t- track limits are going to be enforced at whatever corner or corners on a race weekend, I think that uh, it, it's become better over just the short uh, amount of time that we've seen pass over the first couple of races of the season. And it's not just it's not just the application of the adjudication, the officiating during the race. It's also how they transparently communicate how they're going to be officiating track limits before 
the race itself. And and I think maybe some of the misses in the past is one, they were only enforcing it intermittently in race, which I think we saw in Bahrain, which I think was a real problem, right? Yeah. Which was ultimately the Mercedes cars were blatantly disregarding track limits for the first half of the race. And they could because nobody was enforcing it. And then ultimately they began enforcing at the end, which was, I think, unfortunate and led to days or if not weeks of conversation about how poor the enforcement of track limits were. But yeah. I think they're doing, and this is by all accounts and based on everything I've heard, they're doing a much better job of being very clear with the teams and the drivers about how and when and where they're going to be enforcing track limits. So it shouldn't necessarily be a surprise. It shouldn't have been a surprise to Max during qualifying, and it shouldn't have been a surprise for him on on lap 66. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, if you look at the entire quote from uh, Dr. Helmut Marco, he says, quote, now we've lost the victory, fastest lap, and pole position. All things good come in threes. I hope that's the end of it. Something has to change. Either you make a boundary with curbs or you make it gravel or something. If you go out, there's an automatic penalty. Lando Norris overtook Sergio Perez, went over with all four wheels, and there were no consequences. So it's not consistent, and that's not racing when you juggle the rules like that, end quote. Yeah, I mean, I can maybe understand to a certain degree that uh, that the, the the move that Lando made. I mean, I know that uh, Perez got the, the the position back, and there may have been there was a bit of discussion on the commentary that maybe McLaren made him give the position back. You know, he slowed down because I mean, all of a sudden Perez really found uh, you know an extra margin of speed because I mean you have to remember that this McLaren isn't a pushover, right? I mean, it's got a Mercedes engine and it. it's a decent car in its own right. But, uh, I mean, there was nothing overtly said. You know, we didn't hear anything on race radio. I mean, there was no investigations uh, by the stewards. So I'll give him that. But I, I thought the one thing that he uh, he said that uh, really kind of stood out that I thought was a bit weird was, uh, you know, either you make a boundary with curbs or make it gravel or something. Because then, you know, if they did something like that, then the next thing is one of his cars goes over and gets, uh, you know, breaks a piece of suspension on the, uh, the you know, these big curbs or puts the wheel into the gravel and he's out of the race. And then they'll be talking about these stupid curbs the stupid gravel traps whatever it might be so i can understand he's a little bit uh, frustrated but still i i I don't completely agree with everything that uh, he's saying there i mean it it seemed like you said that it was it was pretty clear cut and i mean at the end of the uh, at the end of the day it's only for one point it was the stupid fastest lap of the race point which they kind of introduced what was it about three four years ago or whatever it was you know i can understand that maybe it uh, has a it's kind of a neat thing in its own right, but I'm who's really going to remember next year that Lewis Hamilton won this race and uh, his teammate got the fastest lap of the race. I mean, we might remember because we've, we're having this discussion now, but I mean, I couldn't remember who got fastest lap of the race two weeks ago at Imola. So, you know, I, just- I think this is actually a really good point to interject. We actually had a, uh, a listener on Twitter actually tweet at us a couple of days ago, specifically about the fastest lap point. And, <laughs> BJ Crabtree, shout out. Thank you for uh, tweeting at us. But he specifically asked that thing. He said, you're going to have to explain this fastest lap concept to me. Quote, unquote, doesn't seem very sporty if you ask me. I say that respectfully, <laughs> by the way. Hamilton is still the best. So impressive. Another great weekend. But uh, I-, I think his point was, it seems strange and it seems a little bit gimmicky. And to be fair, if we want to start unpacking gimmicky parts of Formula One, we need to go and look at DRS right away. But I think, and, and I'd love your perspective on this, I really think that the fastest point was 
injected into the sport as a mechanism to keep people interested at the end of a race that Hamilton was winning by 20 seconds, right? Like to me, that was, that's at least that's the conclusion that I drew, which is, Hey, how can we find a way to inject some excitement into the end of the race when the conclusion is a foregone dis- is or the and outcome is a foregone conclusion. Yeah, it almost kind of had that feel, right? But uh, when I thought, uh, or my thoughts was when it was uh, introduced was, it, it seemed a bit silly. It's just like, are really people going to get out of their seats because Sebastian Vettel is going to get a single point for setting the fastest lap of the race or, you know, Charles Leclerc or whoever it might be. So it, it's... I could understand trying to maybe generate interest in other ways, but I thought for the you know the, the sake of a single point, maybe if it was for five points or something a little bit more substantial, it uh, just uh, it, it seemed you know no pun intended pointless <laughs> to to you know, for for one point. But it uh, it it does add a bit of a dynamic now that uh, like like we were saying right off the top of the show that uh, you know both Mercedes and Red Bull were so hyped up to fight over this thing right at the end of the race that uh, once uh, bought went to change the tires and Max basically had a free uh, pit stop to do the same it uh, it really seemed kind of odd uh, that uh, that that you know well we we haven't been in this position maybe this is what they were hoping for when they introduced it that there would be some competition or the the constructors of drivers to the championship would be closer than uh, it was when the, the this thing was actually brought in a couple of years ago that they there would be a situation where they would be fighting it out and maybe this is the first time we're seeing this concept you know proven in reality right before our eyes so it'll be one thing to 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 look at at Spain and all the races uh, from here on out or maybe this will be the one anomaly that will will forever stick in our minds when they finally do away with it if they do away with it and uh, we'll say oh yeah well it 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 was it was good in theory but we only ever really saw it come to fruition in Portugal in 2021 and never again and never before right yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it uh, certainly is a, it's a funny one, but I, I do think that uh, regardless that, uh, you know, the, the single point going to uh, to Bottas and Mercedes, I don't know if one point is going to come down to it at the end of the year, but uh, I, I'm getting the feeling now that unless something drastically changes, that th- that the margin between these two teams, however, which whichever way it goes by the end of the way or the end of the year, I think it will be fairly close, and th- and that's what I'm hoping for. I don't think it's going to be a single point, but I think it'll be a lot closer than it has been. It, it, you know, I, I'm thinking about this now. You're right. Like if you if you think about it within the confines, or if you compartment compartmentalize the idea into a single race, you're right. It's a single point. But over the course of a 20 or 22 race calendar, if you as a team are able to pick up 10 fastest laps, that's 10 points. Yeah. That's not insignificant in the context of a constructors championship. Right. Like yep. that definitely changes the the dynamic a little bit. I still think I, I still think it's a little bit manufactured in the sense that again, look at the two cars that were competing for the fastest lap today. Hamilton's up five seconds. Nobody's gonna catch Hamilton. So you have these two cars that effectively take a free pit stop. They change tires. They don't need to change tires for any other reason than the fact that they're gonna chase the fastest lap because they don't have a shot at the race win and the podium's effectively decided at that point. I think that's I think that's the part of it that I don't like is that it's, it's so manufactured, right? Like you had two cars that 
took an unnecessary pit stop in the effort of trying to put in one fastest lap. Like I'm all for awarding a point for a fastest lap, but I'd love to see it in the vein of the race itself. Mm -hmm. um, when the cars are actually on the track competing against each other, those seem what we saw today when they were able to pit on lap 64, whatever it was, I know you mentioned it earlier, but what we saw today when they pit on lap 64, they get fresh tires. It's basically, they're putting the car in party mode and just going out for their Q3 yeah, exactly. run. Yeah. It seems very manufactured and it's, it seems very circumstantial in the sense that, Hey, we just happen to have the opportunity today because we weren't going to win the race and Hamilton was five seconds up. And then the other thing it does too, is it, it distorts in a sense, the outcome of the race. Like if all you looked at was the race classification today, you see Hamilton win by 30 seconds, but that itself is artificial because you had two cars pit to change tires. Yeah. It's, it's very, very strange. And then I think ultimately, if you look back and, and formula one is it's like baseball in the sense that they relish history. They talk about the past. They talk about previous champions. They talk about corners on racetracks, statistics, points. It's very, very, very important in the historical context of the sport. And the sports history is very important in informing how decisions are made today and the way the racetracks are built and the way people attack corners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it does influence the way ultimately people will reflect back on the history of the sport, right? Like if you look at like, hey, what was what was the average time that Hamilton won a race over the course of his career? Well, yeah. That number is now artificial because you have cars intentionally taking 30 seconds out of a, like, I, I'm going to stop ranting because the more <laughs> I unpack this into my head, the more I dislike it. But I thought that was a great tweet and it really had me, uh, really had me thinking, and we won't get into it now, but just as much, we could talk about DRS being artificial in the sense that you're artificially injecting an opportunity for a car to pass when maybe that wouldn't have been there before, but that's for another day. That's a, that that's off season discussion where we're, we're hurting <laughs> for, you know, content to, to totally. and news and things to put out. Anyway, so let's take another break here, Mark. We'll come back. There's still, still a number of interesting stories to, to talk about in this race. And uh, first of all, I want to talk about how Max hopes this is the last time we will see four Formula One at uh, Portimao. Anyways, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, yeah, just before the break there, I was uh, I, I dropped a little bit of a teaser, but Max Verstappen says that uh, he hopes that Formula One's not going to come back to Portugal and to Portimao. And it's not necessarily for the reasons that you might think. Well, I guess it depends which way you're thinking, but it's it's not for maybe the the uh, maybe the not ideal race weekend uh, that uh, that he was hoping for. Anyways, uh, Max was uh, he was really complaining about the level or the lack of grip that he had around the the the, the circuit, and uh, basically uh, because of that, he says that uh, he hopes Formula One does not go back there. He says uh, he believes that uh, Barcelona, which is where the Spanish Grand Prix is uh, next up, he says that's a good track. He says there's a good track that's well suited to Formula One and then uh, he says he believes there as well that we'll really get a good sense of how everybody's have progressed so far in the season so yeah you know it, it seems I don't know it seems like a little bit of an overreaction I know I said uh, last podcast that I thought that Portobello is a nice track maybe not 
ideal for these modern Formula One cars, but certainly I think it's got some good characteristics uh, to it. I mean, the, the the commentary team were comparing it to a roller coaster with the, the change in elevation, which I really like. I really like that sweeping right, uh, right-hander when they come out of, what, uh, turn 14 or turn 15 onto the pit straight there. That is certainly, I think, uh, pretty cool. That's a good one to watch. So, I mean, it does have some uh, plus sides. And uh, of course, I guess if you're a driver, then of course, you know, that the, some of the nuances and some of the things that make your life and your job a little bit more difficult like uh, grip levels certainly are going to be something that either you like or you don't like and obviously he was not uh, very uh, you know happy with that but cer- certainly we did see other things too like wind come into um, you know cause some guys issues uh, throughout the, the the weekend but I don't know what do you think would you like to see Formula One go back to Portimao? Thank you for asking that question. It's it's funny. When I was preparing for the podcast, I actually wrote out a list of kind of the, the top themes that I wanted to address on the pod. And yeah. the number one theme for me was the track. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I liked it last year. And I know we talked a couple of days ago about how how undulating the surface is. Yeah. And that term, and I even wrote it down here, roller coaster. It has that feel and it has that sensation. It looks good on TV. It challenges the drivers. Uh, it creates some opportunities for passing because drivers are more likely to make a mistake than they would on a flat track. I thought it was fantastic. Now, to to speak to that, that Max Verstappen comment, that surprises me a little bit. Obviously, he had some comments throughout the weekend about the surface. So last year, when they were at this track, drivers complained that the track was too bumpy. The surface wasn't great. If the track's bumpy, one, it's incredibly uncomfortable for the drivers because these cars, for all intents and purposes, have no suspension and they have no cushioning in their seats. So if the track is bumpy, they feel it. The other challenge with a bumpy track is the car's lose a significant amount of grip and downforce Mm -hmm. if the track is poor. So they resurfaced it, which is good. But the problem is they resurfaced it recently, which made it ultra slippery. And I thought that was Max's biggest complaint. And you saw a little bit of it, I think somewhere around lap 36 or 37, when Bottas had pitted, he'd managed to come out in front of Max. Max was on tires that were a lap newer or a lap older, but he'd had some heat in those tires. And if you remember, uh, Bottas steps out or as the back end steps out partly yep. because of cold tires partly because the track was a little bit slippery but I'd actually heard some comments and it was an interview from Max earlier today speaking to the fact that hey I, I actually really like the track the surface wasn't great it was really great so when I saw the story that you were referring to I thought the same thing it's like feels like it's a bit of an overreaction that ultimately it's a great track uh, it, it plays well it looks great on TV I think we'd spoken to the fact that it wasn't necessarily engineered with Formula 1 cars in mind but that Mm -hmm. said we saw some overtaking today and ultimately tracks that aren't necessarily engineered for formula one cars don't necessarily facilitate overtaking but we saw that today so i thought it was great now in terms of max's comment about spain he obviously has warm feelings for that track because that's where he won his first grand prix back in 2016 2016. after the silver mercedes cars took each other (laughs) out right at the beginning of the the track but I, i was surprised by that comment and i thought it was a bit of an overreaction and i don't think it's necessarily a good look when when one of your top drivers is saying hey i hope we don't come back to this track that's really dramatic and unnecessary and it doesn't do a lot to foster the goodwill of the spectators in that country who didn't actually even get the opportunity to attend a race i'd really love to see portugal with a hundred thousand people in the stands i i would love to see that but i love austria and i spoke to this last thursday i love it because of the elevation gain and the elevation yep. depreciation and i love this track for the same reason and again you can't compare this to austria in terms of the elevation component but 
I thought it was a great track and I hope they find a way to keep it back on the calendar, even if it's on a semi-reoccurring basis. You know, it's kind of funny because you make that, that, that comparison to the Red Bull ring at Spielberg, right? And I always get the same... I get the same vibe watching these two tracks. They're fairly short. They're fairly compact. But I mean, if you look at the lap times, I think at the Red Bull ring, I think they're running, what, about a 1 minute 13, something yeah. like that. Whereas this one, it, it's, it, it was 119 and a, a, yeah. a, what, just a little bit shy of 120, I think is where the fastest lap of the race uh, came in. So it's it's a touch longer. I mean, they, they they kind of fold back in on themselves. So it's it's a little bit longer than you think. But yeah, I, I think the one real thing that kind of stands out is exactly like you say, this track was designed not with Formula One cars in mind. But that being said, these are supposed to be the best racing cars in the world. They're supposed to be up for the challenge. So, I mean, it's not like they're racing on uh, some ridiculously impractical street circuit or go-kart track. I know that's exactly. uh, like a terrible comparison, but it's uh, for, for me, it works. And um, like I say, I'm, I'm on the fence whether or not it's the ideal Formula One track. But like you say, when you make that comparison with the next venue in Barcelona, and, and I've been to the Spanish Grand Prix. I mean, it's a great facility. It's a, a great place to go and watch a race. But the thing is that these guys, they've been to that track a million times. They, they've done their winter testing there for years and years and years. And they could basically drive the circuit with their eyes closed. And just the layout of the track itself does not really lend to too many passing opportunities. And that's where I think that uh, that Portimao has the advantage. I, I, I think that last year we saw something like 58 or 60 overtaking, like over the course of the the entire race which is just shy of one a lap i don't know where it came out this afternoon but that that's not bad i mean that's actually pretty good i mean there's been quite a lot of action on the track and the one thing is we saw the the leaders changing position we saw quite a number of uh, overtaking throughout the, the the field throughout the afternoon and i think that's what people want to see right i mean we want to see we, we want to see overtaking we want to see drivers competing we want to see drivers fighting for position and and that's why, I mean, like I say, I mean, I've, I've got fond memories of going to Spain in person, but classic races at Barcelona, they've kind of been a little bit far and few between and sometimes maybe for the wrong reasons. I mean, 2016 stands out as one of the exceptions because you have that mem memorable crash at turn three on the opening uh, lap uh, between Lewis and Nico Rosberg. They're out. And then the stage is set for this young new hotshot Max Verstappen to step in and take his first win in Formula One, right? I mean, so that's one of those ones that sort of stands out. But the racing there can be somewhat plain and, well, I mean, dare I say vanilla, <laughs> you know, that, that 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 plain and, well, I actually, I like vanilla ice cream, so I shouldn't say it's boring, but it can, tends to be not the most exciting track on the circuit, on the calendar, I should say. I, I really don't have anything else to uh, to add to that. And, and my sense is, to me, there's some vanilla tracks in the series. China's one. Uh, and obviously, we didn't get an opportunity to see China last year. We didn't get to see, a, see China this year. I think what sets Barcelona uh, apart or the Spanish Grand Prix apart is mm -hmm. especially when Alonso's in the series, there's a certain atmosphere there yeah. that is very MotoGP like, and I know I was messaging you about this the other day, but the MotoGP circuit typically has 18, 19, 20 races. They have four different races at four different tracks in Spain. And the atmosphere is 
it's bonkers. It's it's kind of a cross between a Formula One race and a football match between two really premier football clubs. The atmosphere is bonkers. And I think one of the things that I've always liked about the Spanish Grand Prix is it borrows a little bit from that MotoGP vibe, which is much more driver centric, I think, even than you would typically see at a Formula One race. And not to go on a totally different tangent, but if you go to a MotoGP race more and you're starting to see a little bit of this in Formula One, they'll have entire grandstands that are reserved for the supporters of a specific driver. And everyone in that grandstand has to wear the same color and they wear banners and they cheer yeah. for that that driver. Like it's a very different vibe, but I think that's what makes the Spanish Grand Prix exciting. And I'm excited to see it this year, although less so the last couple of years because Alonso's back. I just want to see how the crowd reacts. Of course, that's going to be muted because of the the current health and safety situation. But I agree. To me, Spain historically has been a little bit vanilla relative mm-hmm. to some of the other tracks that we see. Yeah, I mean, having said that, I mean, it's a wonderful wonderful place to go and watch a race because, I mean, Barcelona in itself is a fantastically awesome city full of amazing things to do. And uh, yeah, well, that's all I have to say about that because then I'm going to start burning out material to talk about uh, in our preview show for the Spanish Grand Prix. But moving along, uh, one of the things I think was interesting at the end of the race uh, or just uh, one of the storylines from the race was I would have given a slight edge to Red Bull on the medium compound tires, but when they switched to the hard compound uh, tires, I think that uh, the advantage was much clearer that uh, that the Mercedes was better on the hard compound tires. (coughs) Excuse me. But the one thing I thought was very interesting is in that last kind of closing stage of the race that uh, that Max, he was ahead of Bottas, but it was looking as though that he might get close enough at some point to actually be within striking distance. And who knows, uh, maybe if uh, might have been able to make an overtaking maneuver on him. It didn't turn out that way, but it turned out that there was a sensor issue that caused uh, power loss. And then he dropped back to about four and a half, five seconds, and it kind of stayed there because before they had those sort of manufactured uh, 30 second gap to Lewis there because of the pit stops. We kind of had like a like five seconds kind of spread out uh, between Lewis to Max and then five seconds from Max uh, to, to, to Valtteri. So it was kind of funny because it's one of those things you typically don't expect to see with a, a Mercedes. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess you could say that the, uh, the, the damage was somewhat minimized because they still had one in three. They got the fastest lap points. So yeah, I think they obviously would have won a one-two finish, but it wasn't an absolute disaster finish for them. No, I, I completely agree. And I think the team's ultimately happy with the outcome. The fact that Bottas was on the podium uh, was a good news story. It is fairly interesting and somebody had texted me about this earlier today. It's like Lando's third in the driver's titles or driver's standings. I'm like, well, to be fair, Bottas had a DNF. So I think they were yeah. probably more than happy that he was able to cash in on some points and didn't ultimately get himself tangled up with another driver that ultimately lost them all the points. But yeah, I, I agree. I I always find it remarkable that teams are able to diagnose these issues on the fly and mm-hmm. resolve them so quickly. Like uh, to me, like it's terrible that it happened, but the fact that they've got the telemetry and they've got all of the insightful data that enables them to identify the issue and rectify it is is pretty incredible. But I think you're right. Like ultimately, I don't think it necessarily swayed the outcome of the race. And I think they would have left a one two, but I think they're ultimately satisfied with a, a one three. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I want to take one final uh, uh, break here. And then when I want to come back, I want to talk about a couple of other stories. I think we've talked about the big two teams uh, long enough. And I want to come back, just want to touch on a couple of other things. And we'll do so in just a moment. So please don't go away. We'll be right back. 
All right. Well, welcome back to the show. We're breaking down the 2021 Portuguese Grand Prix and uh, just, well, I mean, we should probably should have done this off at the top of the final race classification for uh, places. Well, we'll just do the one to 10. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, uh, Max Verstappen, Valtteri Bottas on the podium. You had Sergio Perez. Not bad. I mean, I think this is where they wanted to see him or on the podium. Anyways, uh, Checo in P4 for the Red Bull. And then you have Lando Norris, Charles Leclerc, Esteban Ocon. Fernando Alonso, Danny Ricardo, and Pierre Gasly rounding out the top 10. A bit of a disappointing race for Carlos Sainz. He had a fairly decent qualifying and he had a, a, a fairly decent start to the race, but at the end, he uh, just he dropped out of the points. I mean, he qualified in fifth, uh, you know, three places ahead of his uh, teammate, uh, Charles Leclerc, so a bit uh, disappointing uh, for, for that. And then uh, just looking at the uh, the Drivers' uh, Championship, Lewis Hamilton, 69 points, uh, eight points ahead now of uh, Max Verstappen. Like you said, Lando Norris, third in the Drivers' Championship on 37. Valtteri Bottas is fourth with 32. And then you have Charles Leclerc rounding out the top five with uh, with 28 points. And then on the Constructors' uh, side, you have uh, Mercedes with 101. Red Bull, 28. Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> I can't do my math here. They're on uh, 83 points. So, uh, you know, like I said, they're, they're, they're dropping back a little bit, but the, the gap is not insurmountable at this point. Then you have a uh, McLaren with 53, Ferrari with 42, and then Alpine with uh, with 13 uh, points to round out uh, the top five. So we have three teams that have not scored a single world championship uh, so far, or world championship point so far, I should say. That is Alfa Romeo, Williams, and Haas. Anyways, I wanted to touch on uh, a couple of stories here as we start to to wind the show down. Um, Aston Martin. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first one. So I I was encouraged. I was first of all, I was disappointed that Lance did not make it out of Q1. I was a little bit more encouraged that I was finally seeing Sebastian Vettel in Q3 for the first time in literally 300 years. So that was positive. 15 races. 15 races. Silverstone was the last time he got into Q3. That's a, that's a long time. Anyways, it was good to see one of them in the in in Q3. So I thought, well, maybe there's maybe there's something here, maybe Seb can get some points, but by the time it was all said and done, they just uh, yeah, it was a, it was another disappointing weekend for them. I mean, there there was no reliability issues. Sebastian didn't drive up the back of somebody, but he said at the end he just did not have enough point or pace to score any points in Portugal. And uh, he said even as early as uh, ten laps, it was difficult to to keep touch with the with the with the cars in front of them. And uh, he said he he just couldn't stay with them and just just basically lost out. So that uh, that is very very disappointing. And I don't know what to say at this point, really. I mean, they, they've underwhelmed and really disappointed to a degree I was not prepared for. Let's just put it that way. I was going to make a point a couple of minutes ago when you were talking about uh, Carlos Sainz and, and Ferrari, and I think ultimately the the Carlos Sainz finish was disappointing because Ferrari, I think, very much sees themselves in a battle with McLaren for third place in the Constructors' Championship. And trust me, yeah. I'm going to work my way back to Aston Martin somehow, but ultimately, <laughs> I think we're going to see two stories this year. One is going to be Red Bull potentially fighting Mercedes for the title, the Constructors' title, but I think we could also see a really good battle between Ferrari and McLaren for for, for third place. So I think those points that Carlos potentially, I don't want to say forfeited, but those points that he wasn't able to cash in on today was a big deal. But what's kind of scary right now is if you look at the Constructors' Championship, you have Mercedes 101 points, Red Bull 83, McLaren 53, Ferrari 42, Alpine 13, 
AlphaTauri 9, Aston Martin, seventh place, five points through three races, and Sebastian Vettel still hasn't scored a point. And to your point, yeah. he he breaks through to Q3, and we're thinking, finally, you know, psychologically, that that must be a, a massive relief for this guy. And maybe he's going to be able to unleash something on the track on race day that we haven't seen in a while, but ultimately to finish 14th. Was he finished 14th today? Uh, yeah, 14th. No, sorry. Lance finished 14th and, and ultimately Sebastian Vettel finished 13th, but to lose three places for Lance to finish out of the points, it was a, it was a horror show. And obviously they didn't have mechanical issues. This was just, they didn't have the pace on this track and it's not shaping up to be a a good year for, for this team. And it's, it's honestly almost to the point where they're not a part of the conversation. And if you had not Sebastian Vettel up, I don't think we would have mentioned them. And I don't think this is where they want to be that three races into the season. We're not even talking about them. Like we're not talking about McLaren enough, but we're not talking about Aston Martin at all because they haven't earned our attention. No, they haven't. And, you know, it was funny. The, the one point I wanted to make earlier in the show was uh, that I think that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, all season long, we're going to see at some tracks, Red Bull will probably have a slight advantage. And then at other tracks, the Mercedes will have a totally. slight advantage. And the, the thing is, you you would expect that, that uh, one car, you know, we, we have two challengers like that. The car, one car or the other will be slightly better suited to one track or another. But the one thing that we're seeing with the with the Aston Martin, three races in, it's not suited to any of the tracks that we've been to so far. And it looks like that they just got it so wrong and they were affected so much by these changes to the aero rules this year that it's just to mess them up so much. And it went back to the point that we made on the podcast either this week or last week that... You know, it was one thing for them to really think outside the box and ex- or exploit the rules last year to their advantage with the whole pink Mercedes thing. But on the flip side, this year, they've been so completely caught out on the other side that it's really, it, it's been a complete rever- uh, reversal in fortune. It's it, it really is staggering because, you know, we're talking about them, like you say, because they are not giving us a reason to talk about them. But in effect, they are because we're talking about them because they've just been so bad. I'll put this into context as well. And I think a lot of our newer listeners may not understand this, but prior to becoming Racing Point, this team was known as Force India. And Force India was a team that was run on a shoestring budget. The team entered administration back in 2018. Lawrence Stroll, Lance Stroll's father, swooped in. He bought the team out of administration. He did the right thing. He kept all the staff. He promised to invest in the team. He did it. But when they went into the 2019 season, because the team was effectively bankrupt throughout the 2018 season, they didn't have the money to build a new car for 2019. So the car that they took into the 2019 season was basically the 2018 car and the point i'm trying to make is that three races into the 2019 season when they were running a car that was a year old they had more points than they do now three races into a season where they have the best power unit in the sport and a chassis that they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars developing like this is a shocking start to the season and i think Mm -hmm. the issue is you can't see the end of this, right? Like if it was, hey, you know what? They've had some mechanical issues. They had a couple of DNFs. You know, Lance made a mistake. He crashed out. You could start to paint a picture that there's there's light at the end of this tunnel, but they're finishing these races. They just don't have any pace whatsoever. Oh, I know. It's it's absolutely incredible. And just one other thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, just a lack of pace. I mean, 
our good friend uh, Nikita Mazepin. <laughs> he, he he was making the headlines again, I guess, to a certain uh, extent uh, this time. We're standing out for all the wrong reasons. I mean, he ignored four blue flags when uh, Checo Perez was leading the race, and you know Checo was lucky he didn't lose his front wing. I mean, uh, Mazepin, you know, properly assigned a five second uh, penalty uh, for for that. But I was going through and looking at the fastest lap times uh, that were set. So uh, Bottas, his fastest lap of the day, set on lap 65, was a 119.865. So the only person that didn't set a fastest lap was Kimi Raikkonen because he actually didn't complete a lap. (laughs) So anyways, so Nikita Mazepin, he was the 19th fastest driver on the day. His fastest lap was a 123.6. So, <laughs> I mean, that is an absolute, uh, well, I mean, to, to say it's a, a country mile in terms of difference is just staggering. But I mean, you look at uh, Mick Schumacher, his fastest lap was a 122.755. I mean, he's almost, a, he's nine tenths of a second faster than his own teammate. Okay, granted, the Haas probably isn't the best or the fastest car to begin with. But that delta between the two teammates and th- those two times were set only three laps apart. Schumacher set his fastest lap on lap 61. Mazepin was on lap 64. God only knows how far he was in the final race classification, uh, race classification, pardon me. I know he was way down by the time it was all said and done, but that is just a uh, a shocking thing. I mean, he was two laps down. I mean, both of them were, but uh, it uh, that that's that's staggering that's that's a huge I have to be careful because I don't want it to seem like I'm just piling on for the sake of piling on but I think both you and I were extraordinarily skeptical about what Nikita Mazepan was going to be able to bring to this team in terms of performance this year and to be fair the Haas is the slowest car on on the circuit I'll be very honest Lewis probably wouldn't be able to bring this car out of Q1 in any qualifying session this year Uh, and that says a lot but I think what we're seeing with Mazepan is not only does he have horrendous pace it's just the lack of self-awareness on the track Mm -hmm. and the impact that he's having on other people's races and i'm actually really glad you brought up the mick schumacher point as well i i think one of the really good news stories for mick today was he actually he was actually in a race and, yep. and by that i mean he actually legitimately finished ahead of another driver who themselves finished the race so i thought it was really good that that mick is is in a position where he overtook somebody he finished he finished not dead last but he finished 17th and it was a well-earned spot so i think that was good for him and his development and his psychological well-being but i think the other story here too is and i'm not sure if you plan to get to this but ultimately it was another disappointing weekend for for williams uh nicholas latifi obviously struggled through the practice sessions um Russell had an okay qualifying, and I think that there was a thought that maybe this is the race that they're going to break into the points, but the race ultimately spoke otherwise. But yeah. kind of talking to Nicholas Latifi, it, he he had a really bad exchange with Mazepan also in qualifying, and I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but there was a point where he was cursing on the radio, and Latifi's not the type of person that curses, but Mazepan brought it out of him. But ultimately, again, tough weekend for Williams. They finished behind a Haas. George Russell was in a position to score points this weekend. He finished 16th. Just another disappointing weekend overall for the Williams team. Yeah, you know, it was. it's kind of funny because I know that they were really kind of buoyant that maybe they might score some points this weekend. But 
I just kind of had a bit of a bad feeling after I watched qualifying on Saturday that George, you know, Mr. Saturday, who's such a regular <laughs> in, in, yeah, I know it's, it's a bit of, and I, and I mean that in the best possible way. I mean, I'm not being uh, sort of sarcastic or anything, but I mean, he's been so good to get into Q3 so many times in a car that really isn't, uh, you know, suited for that uh, sort of thing, but he just sort of missed out. And I just kind of had that sinking feeling for him because I can't remember exactly how much he missed out on uh, on progressing further in qualifying but it w- it was a very small amount i think it was under a tenth of a second so a, you know a very very small time difference so it was disappointing uh, for him but i mean on the flip side at least uh, for schumacher that was you know, very good i mean he was really quite uh, positive ab- about it he said that uh, he felt like the car had a lot more pace this weekend he felt that uh, that there was a lot of momentum that they got out of that and he really feels that if things keep going that this car is going to be much much better by the end of the year i mean ultimately the you know we're we're going to get completely brand new, radically different cars for 2022. I mean, that's a completely different conversation, but, you know, he seems pretty positive about that. And I think that, uh, you know, for himself also being you know pretty young driver for a season in Formula One, then he's going to take that uh, away from him. And uh, this will be, I think, a race that will really make a good impression on him so early in his career, even though, like you say, I mean, he's well down in the running order, but... You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, the, the the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. I mean, you know, take whatever, you know, comparison you want to make. But uh, I, I think it was a positive result for him nonetheless. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's it's ultimately good for the sport. I, I think they want whatever opportunity presents itself to put him in a marketable position. And, and I'm happy for him. I just, I, I think ultimately, obviously, I, I'm a little bit biased because I want to see the Canadian drivers do well. And yeah. this weekend, they just, they weren't on the radar ultimately uh, whatso, whatsoever. Yeah. And just finally, the last one I wanted to, to get to was uh, Fernando Alonso said that uh, he was fueled by anger to get into the points <laughs> at the end of the the, the 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 race, pardon me. And he actually ended up in P7. I think actually that uh, Alpine was a bit of a um, a bit of a surprise because at one point during the race, I kind of had the feeling that it didn't really look like it was going too well for them. Uh, I, I think ultimately it may have uh, changed out uh, or ended up a little bit better than expected, but Fernando kind of showed a couple of little things here and there. I mean, um, P7, I think, was uh, decent. I think slowly but uh, surely he's uh, getting back to, uh, you know, where he wants to be. But still, I I think that, uh, you know, being fueled by anger is kind of an interesting comment from Fernando. It doesn't surprise me. I I think if you you know Fernando and how passionate it is, or he is about racing and his race craft and, and the results. I think uh, this probably doesn't come as a surprise, but I thought it was a, a really solid drive. And ultimately, Alpine, I have to be careful. I almost said Renault, but Alpine <laughs> finished with a, a P7 and a P8. They were able to cash in on a double points finish. They're currently sitting fifth in the constructors. And like I said, they're they're significantly behind the P4 team right now but I think it was a it was a nice tidy weekend for them and I think they're continuing to build right like if you look at their first race weekend they finished 13th and they had a retirement um in Imola they were 9 and 10 and then this re- race weekend they were 8 and 7 so they're continuing and continuing to build and I think based on what we saw out of that that package last year that there's potentially 
some podium potential there. I hate to use the word potential twice in a sentence, but there's certainly podium potential there if the circumstances are right, whether it's race, whether whether it's there's some damage on cars up ahead of them. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see one of the two drivers on a podium this year. Um, I kind of like to see Alonso, um, and I'm not an Alonso fan, but I think it's a it's an interesting story to talk about that mm-hmm. he leaves the sport for two years, he's 72 years old, and he's able to come <laughs> back and secure a podium. But yeah, I, I think it was a great news story for Alpine as well, that they continuing to build some momentum after a really tough uh, opening race weekend in the the, the Gulf. Yeah, actually, uh, I, I misspoke. It was his teammate Esteban Alcal that came on P7. I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to yeah. say it. I, did, I, did, I said it, and then I'm just like, I better just double check my notes here because I think I got that wrong. Yeah, so he was P8, and uh, basically what he was saying is he was he was fueled by anger after what what was a bit of a disappointing uh, qualifying. So, yeah, I mean, that'll certainly be one to watch because I, I think that where they are in the constructors uh, in P5 is not... It's not too shabby, but, you know, I mean, they're they're well back of a Ferrari. I mean, Alpine only has 13 points in the constructors for P5 and Ferrari has 42. So, I mean, if they want to start moving up and challenging that uh, that next tier of the best of the rest, then they have the, their, their work cut out for them. But I, I think, like you say, that there is maybe hints that uh, if things go right, that uh, things could work out for them and they might be able to sneak a podium or two here or there. I mean, they did last year. I mean, we saw Danny Ricardo then... In the guise of Renault on the podium a couple of times later in the year. So who knows? It would be, like you say, a really kind of interesting story, a really good talking point to see uh, 72-year-old Fernando Alonso. Is he, what is he, like the Tom Brady or the Gordie Howe of uh, Formula One? It certainly looks like it. Uh, but uh, yeah, good story uh, nonetheless. Anyways, Mark, I, I don't know. That's uh, about all I got, uh, you know, in terms of uh, this one. L- like you say, it was a bit of an interesting uh, race because uh, it, on the surface, it doesn't look like there was a lot to talk about. But when you really dive into it, there were some really meaty, interesting stories uh, to talk about. And it uh, certainly uh, leaves us uh, wanting more for Spain coming up uh, next on the schedule. And I just wanted to give a shout out to, to a couple of listeners, uh, Carlos Hernandez, Eli Thacker, and also to Chris Lee, all in touch. Uh, via the email over the past uh, couple of days we'll get around to those emails they made some really or made some uh, asked some really good questions raised some really good points and we'll save those uh, for the the pod in a couple of days you know they're they're, they're more suited to the the, the longer form uh, show as I look up and notice we're already pushing 60 minutes here for and so, wait, did you say the email <laughs> yeah or the eight. fax wasn't the fax machine wasn't available. No, I'm, just, I'm just teasing. teasing. <laughs> it's uh, it's almost 11 I, p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So I should forgetting. check. I should check. I'm pretty sure we don't have a fax machine around here anymore. But uh, you know, it's actually kind of funny you should mention that because we actually on um, some of our office correspondence we have a fax machine, but I haven't checked the fax machine in the office in literally years. So who knows? There might be an important piece of uh, documentation somebody from 1987 is faxed through to be at work one of these days, and it's just been sitting there because nobody's checked it but uh, anyways on that note <laughs> we will shut it down there thank you guys for watching on youtube uh, listening to the podcast thanks for getting in touch if you want to do so easiest way is on twitter at scuderia f1 pod or email at scuderia f1 pod at gmail.com and that's a wrap enjoy your week we'll be back in a couple of days and until then take care and bye for now